Oh. Well, it wasn't a good clap the first time. Just one clap. I never got one a good... No, I never got a good... Right you don't now, know what a clap it. sync is? Yeah, bro. Come on. You gotta do it loud. You gotta... Not a good clap. That's good clap. There you go. Good clap right there. Was not above your head, Jesus though. Christ. He also asked for one, and you did two. <laughs> it's because the first one wasn't loud. <laughs> yeah. That's why I did more, because none of mine were good. I, I, I have a plethora to pick from <laughs> <laughs> All the claps. Hear that? That's a Jake clap. Welcome to Men of Misfortune, where everybody's got the clap. <laughs> God, someone's clapping for us. Police are on the scene of a deadly shooting. Graphic orgies of blood and violence. Mutilation, decapitation, torture. Does that sound entertaining? More blood than a blood bank. Have we got your attention? Unbelievable crime at the hands of satanic cults. Despite dozens of tips, help from federal agents, and a $40,000 reward, investigators say there are few solid leads. If you find this disturbing, just wait, because there is a whole other dimension. You are now listening to a morning cup of chaos. I want to state this at the top of the episode. Ted Bundy has no human aspects about him. He was a complete and total monster, and in this episode it'll show. We here at Misfortunate Media enjoy true crime and enjoy talking about some of the darkest topics known to man. Our job with this show is to talk about these dark topics with a sense of levity while also paying our respects to his victims while talking about the truth of his heinous actions and pain he caused. Let me set this straight right now. Ted Bundy wasn't someone to idolize, even though many have. He was a petty thief, a narcissist, was a sociopath, and a sorry excuse of a man who looked like he dropped common loot when they fried his ass. Ted robbed over 30 families of their daughters, mothers, friends, and siblings. Ted Bundy has no redemption, has no redeeming qualities, and provides nothing to society other than pain, suffering, and the story we're about to tell. This story will be graphic, there will be blood, and we will get into some graphic details involving his four-year-old stepdaughter. You've been warned. Now on to the show. Okay, so, we're starting this. Town's reading today. I'm reading. <laughs> There's no Dylan. Schimmel died. <laughs> I know. So, uh, RIP to him. Poor yeah. 40 for the homie. Yeah, I guess. So, we have the uh, Wish.com version of Schimmel. Damn. Do you want to introduce yourself? You're yeah, right, reading. You're, you're, you're the talk. readers. I mean, that'd be you, but. So, I'm your diabetic daddy. I'm your fearless leader, Tyler. And I'm your reigning dipshit. Yay! Today Say we're talking about. Jake. I'm your reigning dipshit, Jake. <laughs> Yay! Today we're going to be talking about Ted Bundy Part 2. I'm excited to finally get into this. We recorded this one, so we're going to do it again. Yay! Yay. So, so we have no idea where we left off, but nope. we know where we left off. I don't know the recap. If you want to learn the recap, <laughs> listen to our last episode. And on to Ted Bundy! <laughs> Although Ted... Oh, shit. <laughs> Good start. There's supposed to be a comma there. Okay. <laughs> Although, Ted was never one to stick to just one story. In 1986, Ted told Dr. Dr. Ronald Holmes in an interview that he stalked, strangled, and sexually mauled my first victim, an eight-year-old girl who mysteriously vanished from her Tacoma home 26 years ago. When further questioned as to what he did with the eight-year-old girl's body, he stated he stashed the body of Anne-Marie Barr in a muddy pit, possibly near the University of Puget Sound. His sadistic tendencies around the ages of 14 to 15 only seemed to become exacerbated. Sandy Holt witnessed some of this behavior firsthand. Aw, oh, Jake, you get to be the woman. He hung one of the stray cats in the neighborhood from one of the clotheslines in the backyard, doused it in letter fluid, and set it on fire, and I heard the cat squealing. And by the time somebody got out there with a hose, the cat was gone. 
That was just too much shock for the poor thing. On top of that, it wasn't past Ted to take some of the younger children from the neighborhood out to the woods. He'd take them out there and strip them down. Take their clothes, Sandy said. You'd hear them screaming per block. I mean, no matter where we were, we could hear screaming. In 1965, Ted graduated with a B-plus average and a scholarship to the University of Puget Sound. No <laughs> <laughs> it's Pudget, but okay. Puget. Close enough. No one would ever have expected the church-going young man had also racked up a reputation with local law officials. Ted was picked up twice by police before he turned 18 for suspicion on auto theft and burglary. The details surrounding this, these suspicions will never be clear. As his record was expunged and the details were shredded when Ted turned 18, he signed off a classmate's yearbook. Dearest V, the sweetest of springtime runs down the window pane. I can't help it, it just flows out. Theodore Robert Bundy. No, I'm not. Don't fucking read that. Just move, move on. <clears throat> so, I graduated with a B plus average. Soup, you graduated with a like a D. <laughs> I was a C minus guy. Fuck yeah. <laughs> I was about to say you were the D and you were the C. No, nah, dude, I just never went to school. I just never went. It was on and off. Yeah, senior year I thought was more of like a if you wanted to type <laughs> a of part-time thing. student. Yeah, it's <laughs> pretty accurate though. Wait, did you graduate early or no? No, I just. Barely showed up. He barely graduated. I graduated. I graduated early and didn't fail a single class. I'm proud of you. And I'm still a dipshit. Look at your breeding ground. My mom's a nice lady. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) I plead the fifth. (laughs) Oh, yeah. For those who don't know, (laughs) Soup's fucking Jake's mom. We keep it professional on the show now. <laughs> we keep it in the family. <laughs> Between graduation and college, Ted worked in Tacoma City Light. He entered the University of Puget Sound in the it's fall. Pudget. <laughs> How is that hard to say? Pudget. No, I like it when he goes. <laughs> I like it when he does that. Come on. <laughs> all right. All right. I'll do it better. He entered the University of Puget Sound in the fall of 1965. <laughs> But he wouldn't spend long there. After completing his first year of college, Ted transferred to the University of Washington to study Chinese. However, while a diligent student, he, re- he was regarded as inconsistent and irresponsible by his bosses and peers. To meet any cost he faced at UW, Ted often picked up small side jobs and shoplifted for the rest of his needs. He was drinking. Sometimes the lines between needs and wants blurred. After throwing back a few Mickey Big Mouths beers one evening, Ted drove down to the local mall. He parked geared himself up, and walked up to a Sony television set he'd had his eyes on earlier that day. I was really pumped, intoxicated. I ambled on through the chainware department, opened the door, and there were people looking right in the window at me. Right? I reached in, gave a little wave to the people, picked up the TV, and walked out the window, closing the door behind me, then walked straight through the sales area, out the door, and straight to my car. The TV worked terrific. You guys ever watched the first Fast and Furious movie? Yeah, like... You know that shit that they were trying to steal was like... The box TVs? Yeah. <laughs> like shit you can buy $30 now. <laughs> <laughs> Get them free marketplace. <laughs> Ted's theft helped him... Ted's theft helped... Ted, uh, that's all, folks. Ted's theft helped to deck his apartment out with a stereo, amplifier, speakers, and turntable. He had everything he needed, inconsistent work, consistent kleptomania, and a whole life to himself. 
However, the same year that Ted came to Seattle, there was another dark and cloud of misfortune. Name drop. 20-year-old roommate Lisa Wick and Lonnie Tur- Lonnie? Or Lonnie, Lonnie, Lonnie Turnbull? Trumbull. 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 20-year-old roommates Lisa Wick and Lonnie Trumbull settled into their beds in their basement-level apartment the evening of June 22, 1966. Lisa and Lonnie were both young flight attendants with United Airlines. They and a third stewardess named Joyce Bow had decided to live together. While only having rented the space for a month, the trio were set to move to another apartment in less than a week. Joyce returned to the apartment around 9.30 a.m. the next morning. She noted that the door to their apartment was unlocked and a lamp was left in the living room, not a normal occurrence in their home. Joyce called out to her roommates as she made her way to the apartment, but nobody returned her calls. She entered both roommates' bedrooms to find they were both still in their beds, and both had blood drenching their pillows and walls. After finding her roommates and trying to resurrect them, Joyce rushed upstairs screaming and the paramedics were called. Lonnie was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. Lisa was in critical conditions and unconscious upon arrival and went into emergency surgery for several skull fractures. (laughs) (laughs) And went into emergency surgery for several skull fractures. Surgeons said that the only reason Lisa survived the attack was due to the fact she wore a large padded hair curlers to bed. Both women had been beaten about the head with a blunt object, and the curlers had softened the blows. Investigators later found a blood-soaked five-pound piece of wood that had been taken from a nearby garage and discarded it in the neighboring lot. The wooden plank was three inches thick and 18 inches long. Aside from one resident who heard the scream sometime in the early morning hours and another who saw a car speeding away, few leads came in regarding who the attacker could be. When she woke up from a brief coma, Lisa wasn't able to recover any of her memories of the attack, and their case remains unsolved. Everything seemed to be lining up for Ted during his stay at UW. Until he met the object of his obsession and infatuation, Ted met a woman he referred to as Stephanie Brooks in the spring of 1967. Stephanie was a tall, cosmopolitan, cosmo, cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan. <laughs> I'm gonna skip that word. <laughs> Stephanie was a tall, polished young woman in her junior year at UW. Ted described her as a beautiful dresser, beautiful girl, very personable, nice car, great parents. He felt like Stephanie was too good for him and that she wouldn't be interested in him. She and I had about as much in common as Sears and Robux has with Saks. Stephanie was classically beautiful with long, dark hair that caught Ted's eyes. They began dating shortly after and saw each other frequently. Ted would take Stephanie out on inexpensive dates, long walks, driving around in her car, skiing, and fast food diners. She inspired me to look at myself and become something more. I remember how we used to mumble sweet nothings into each other's ears and told each other how much we loved each other. While Stephanie says she was in love with Ted at this time, she didn't feel it as deeply or intensely as he did. He seemed directionless to her. Lacking in any ambitions for his future, Ted couldn't settle on anything in his life, not even his major. At this time, Ted had switched his sights from a degree in Chinese to a degree in law, which seems a lot more useful. Yeah, it does. It does. Help. Yeah, I, I, I honestly don't even understand why he would study Chinese. That's, I mean, I get the law thing. Like, so what do you what, study Chinese? Like, what do you, what do you well, do when you study Chinese? You can become a translator. You I mean, become a tra- can, is yeah. that really it? Pretty much, <laughs> unless you want to be like a Chinese, like ambassador in China or something like that. So it's he, good to have someone that speaks Mandarin on your team. I don't know. Yeah, huh. that's all I could really put it put it to you know put to it. I can speak bullshit. 
Yeah, and he's really good at that it too. That's true. Yeah, he man. taught me if you say things confident enoughly, you could say whatever you wanted. It <laughs> works. People are gonna yeah. fucking believe you. Yeah. He applied, but was ultimately rejected. He then began to swing between his major in intensive Chinese and considering a major in urban planning. By that summer, Stephanie had graduated and was looking to leave Washington behind. She was set on moving to San Francisco, even if that was without Ted. It was clear that Stephanie couldn't see him fitting into her goals for a life in California. She talked about how he seemed moody, over-emotional. More so, she felt manipulated by him. That was my main criticism of him. He wasn't real masculine. If I got mad at him because he did something, he sort of felt apologetic about it. He wouldn't stand up for himself. So he's a cuck. Yes. Correct. Yes, that's what I'm getting from this. He loved being a cuck. If he could put that on a resume, he would. He's got speaking Chinese and being a cuck. Two C's you definitely want <laughs> to Oh, I'm going back to the Chinese thing. It said intensive Chinese. Is that like an intensive... Uh, well, translator. Intensive Chinese program he was in. That's what the story said. No? Nothing? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> At the same time, he would lie to her, always coming up with answers to excuses for his odd behaviors. She stopped writing, and I started to get fearful of what she was up to. I had this overwhelming fear of rejection that stemmed out, not just from her, but everything. In there was somewhere was desire to have some sort of revenge on her. Ted was slow to let the relationship go. He followed Stephanie out of San Francisco with a scholarship to study Chinese at Stanford University. Ultimately, Stephanie broke things off with Ted by the end of the summer. Ted moved back to Seattle. At first, he seemed to buckle down and focus on his studies on Scientology. You about said Scientology. (laughs) (laughs) He seemed to buckle down and focus his studies on sociology and urban planning. The weight of his first breakup eventually overwhelmed Ted, and his grades began to suffer. He stopped caring about university and his studies in Chinese, or urban planning, or even law. Ted dropped out. The only interest he still had was his interest in politics. And this is the this is the first heartbreak he gets. This is pretty much what pushes him over the line. And this is where I relate to Ted when it comes to dropping everything and just be interested in politics. You're such a fucking liar. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything. I'm glad you did. What? I'm interested in politics. Yeah? Yeah. About taxes and taxes only? No, that's just the government being dumb. What else are you interested in? Dude, in 2016, I was too political. Yeah, now? we did. One, like once Trump was in there, like I got pretty, pretty political. I got pretty involved. Do you know? Go on. Speaking of the Trump in 2016, my first year, I was able to vote, and people I was able to vote for were Trump and Hillary. I was like, wow, I just got fucked out of everything, so I didn't vote. I'm glad we had this conversation. Yeah. During our. Th- during Arthur Allen Fletcher's campaign of Lieutenant Governor of Washington State, Ted volunteered as one of his drivers and bodyguards. He became convinced that the only way to get Stephanie back was to transform himself into the kind of man she wanted him to be. Suave. A suave? What the fuck's a suave? It's smooth. <laughs> a suave, intelligent, conservative man. He became involved with Washington State Republican Party. He b- built up a facade of being an upright, moral side. He built up a facade. <laughs> facade. That works, too. He built up a facade. <laughs> he built up a f- facade of being an upright, moral citizen, even earning accommodation from the S- Seattle Police Department after running down a 
purse snatcher in the street. What's so fucking 1970s? Yeah. Stop, ma'am. <laughs> He's got my purse. I'm going to help. Superman, Ted Bundy. Da, 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 da. I want to know if he's gonna like <laughs> no. the, if he's the best bodyguard or if he's like the worst. Like he's gonna turn all your like at worst enemies into food. Well, see, he won't do anything like right away. Like if he was my bodyguard and somebody punched me, he wouldn't do anything. But I'd know later that night they would get fucked up. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with like how the story comes to an end with what he did at like the fr- or the uh, sorority. Yeah. What he does at the sorority, kind of like I don't know. Would he be the best bodyguard? I think he would take a bullet and fucking <laughs> de- decide to destroy everybody I hated. I feel like Ed Kemper would be the best bodyguard I out of all Ed? the serial killers. I don't know. What about what about you, Jake? Who do you think? I I honestly don't know. The Zodiac Killer, because you wouldn't see him coming. Ta-da-cha. That's a fair point. That's just a conspiracy for the government killing the prostitutes. <laughs> I don't think they were all prostitutes. I'm just going to go ahead and throw that out oh, there. Oh, no, but like the low lives, quote unquote. Yeah. Didn't they find out who that was? The Zodiac? No. Yeah. No. No. I thought they were. I was thinking Jack the Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure he killed like couples. <laughs> yeah, no, Zodiac was. Okay. You're a dumbass, but I love you for I it. I am on two hours of sleep. His travels as a driver and bodyguard took him from all over the city and kept him rather busy. Between these trips, Ted also worked at a Safeway and Olympic Hotel, the latter job of which he lost for stealing personal items from the employee lockers. In April of 1968, Ted ran and was appointed Seattle Chairman and Assistant State Chairman of, New York, of the new majority of Rockefeller. With this position came a chance for Ted to travel to the Miami State Convention, thinking it would be a great way to take his mind off his recent breakup. Ted attended only to watch the candidate he sided with be overwhelmed in the debate. When Ted returned to his positions with Arthur Fletcher, the campaign ended in a narrow loss. Devastated by the resounding failures in school, career, and relationships, Ted decided to return somewhere familiar. He visited Colorado and Arkansas, but settled in Philadelphia in 1969. Nice. Nice. Where he took classes at Temple University. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Where he took classes at Temple University. He lived with his Aunt Julia in her two-story brick home in Lafayette Hill. Here, where he was said to have confirmed concretely that his mother had no idea as to who his father was. This confirmation may have been a strong effect on Ted, who was at a low in his life. For a brief time in the spring, Ted went to the East Coast and said that this time contributed and said that this time contributed to some of his darker thoughts blooming. However, his recorded recollection recollection is spotty at best recalling nights spent around the seedier corners of New Jersey and simultaneously kidnapping and or murderer of two women. On May 27th of 1969, nice, Elizabeth Perry and Susan <laughs> Davis <laughs> decided to take a vacation to Ocean City, New Jersey. Elizabeth and Susan were both 19-year-old students who attended college together in Illinois. To save money and get to visits the states between, Susan offered to chauffeur them in her 1966 powder blue Chevy convertible. After a few days of fun in the city and the sun on the beach, they departed from their hotel on May 30th, 1969, nice, around 4.30 a.m. in an effort to beat traffic on their way out of the city. To save on time, they stopped at Somers Point Diner on the way out of town for breakfast. The diner was bustling, but not abnormally busy. A waitress noted that the two women entered the diner and were approached by three young men. 
The young men seemed to be strangers, but offered to share their table with the women. Susan and Elizabeth accepted, and the shared breakfast seemed to go well. They left about an hour later and were back on the road by 5.30 a.m. A little before noon the same day, a state trooper reported the car abandoned along Garden State Parkway to a local tow company, and the car was hauled away. When the two coeds didn't return for a few days, their parents reached out to the local authorities. Susan and Els were covered with branches and leaves. Susan was face down and completely naked, but her clothes were close by, folded and besides their undisturbed purse. Ten feet away, Elizabeth was dressed, but missing her underwear. One of the victims was tied to a nearby tree by her hair. Ah. Oh. Yeah, that had a fucking... Gotta be painful. Yeah. Elizabeth had three stab wounds in her stomach and in the side of her neck. The fatal wound was a stab wound to her right lung. Susan had three stab wounds to her left side and a smaller wound on her neck. She died due to a stab wound on her neck that severed her larynx. The wounds were small enough that investigators theorized that the killer used a pocket knife or a pen knife. When interviewed, John Divill with Ocean City Police said... I know the way the bodies were left. The person who killed the girls had an excellent knowledge of chemistry knowing that the three things you need are heat, moisture, and darkness and the proper point of audacity to element evidence. All of that was accomplished. It was remarkable. And shout out to our reigning dipshit. Dipshit. <laughs> Sounded like Joe Swanson. <laughs> None of us can talk today. It's fine. <laughs> the coroner's report placed the time of death around 6 a.m., based off the partially digested breakfast in their stomachs. A diver-style watch without a strap was found at the crime scene. Robbery was ruled out as a factor as the suitcases recovered from the convertible still contained valuables and money. When the bodies were examined to determine if sexual assault had been the factor in the murders, coroners could not confirm or deny. Christian Barth, author of the Garden State Parkway Murders, A Cold Case Mystery, explains the reasons for the uncertainty was, because of the three-day lag, there was an accelerated amount of decomposition. Animals had savaged the bodies. This turn, this in turn made it very difficult for detectives to ascertain whether either or one of the girls had been sexually assaulted. Elizabeth's sister was quoted as saying that she was a very sweet girl <clears throat> and that it was inconceivable. Inconceivable! <laughs> All I picture is uh, Jay and Tom and Bob. With nope, a- you missed the marker. <laughs> Damn nope, it. You missed it. Nope, okay. That she had been murdered in cold blood. Shortly after these tragic murders, Ted popped back up into Pennsylvania, and he continued with his semester like normal. He used his free time for a while to look around for his biological father, but was unsuccessful. Coincidentally, another dark incident followed Ted during his brief time left at Temple University. Betsy Arzma was a young, well-educated student at Temple University with long, dark brown hair, parted in the middle. In November of 1969, nice. <laughs> Betsy was a first-year graduate student at Penn State with hopes to become a physician and marry her boyfriend of one year, David Wright. On the way to gather her study materials for an upcoming English paper, her roommate, Sharon Brandt, walked her to the Patat Library and, to the two, and the two discussed their later plans to go see either Take the Money and Run or Easy Rider later that evening. She was spotted speaking with a professor and a group of students about needing to visit the stacks around 4 p.m. Shortly after, Betsy found an open carrel and set down her purse, coat, and books. She utilized the card catalog and headed toward the second floor of the stacks around 4.30 p.m. An assistant supervisor spotted her moments later in the stacks and made note of two young men speaking quietly in a nearby aisle. 
Moments later, a conversation was overheard between a man and a woman, followed by a loud metallic crashing. A witness saw a young man who looked like a student barreling out of the stacks. Betsy's body was found in a puddle of her own urine, crumpled on the ground underneath a pile of books. She was only stabbed once through the left side of her chest, puncturing her breastbone, pulmonary artery, and the right ventricle. Betsy couldn't call out to those around her as she hemorrhaged blood because she was essentially drowning as blood filled her lungs. She wore a red dress with a white turtleneck underneath, and only a little blood was visible when she was discovered. Initially, the person that happened across Betsy originally thought she had an epileptic fit and the small amount of blood they saw coming from her biting her own tongue. She was rushed to the on-site campus medical center where physicians spotted the one-inch wide, three-inch deep stab wound. Betsy was pronounced dead at 5.19 p.m., and her murder remains unsolved to this day. I just want to say, stabbing through a fucking breastbone is difficult. Especially with a pocket knife. Yeah. He's using a pocket knife for all this. And I think the most terrifying thing for these women is they got to see the the true monster that was Ted Bundy in their last final moments. Mm -hmm. Just the sheer rage and frustration of this man that has absolutely no fucking reason to be. Just inflicting all kinds of pain and hellish torment to these girls. I feel so fucking bad for everybody. And in this if you want to see the, what the monster looks like, go and YouTube the moment where he goes, tell the jury they're wrong. And you can see in his eyes the fire of hatred and anger. Just pent up. It's that, it's that mask that he wears that serial killers are known to wear. We call it chameleon. Chameleon. We call Coffee it going. Melon. Yeah, fuck off. Stop. We it. call it being a chameleon. Uh, you know, when these serial killers are able to adapt and be a part of society, they're so you able can blend to blend in very well. When you they're need able to, be. to blend in, and Ted Bunny is one of the best case when it comes to this chameleon aspect. He was even able to fool later down the road a federal judge whenever he was being convicted, and the judge almost believed him to the point where he was like, you know, I feel bad for you because you could have been a lawyer in my courtroom. You could have been something great. Instead, you fucked up and went down this path. I would have loved to have had you in my courtroom, and it's it's outstanding. It's fucking nuts. When things go his way, he is impeccable. The there, moment things go wrong, that's when the mask comes off. Yeah. There is an interview that he was doing right at, right after he got caught. He's, he's got a beard on and basically he's talking to this reporter and she's like, you know, you've been caught. What, you've been caught up with all these murders. Like what's going through your mind? And he's like, ha, I'm going to be innocent. I didn't hurt anybody. And he like stops and stares at the cameraman and just looks at the cameraman. Waiting. Office style. <laughs> yeah, dude. I'm, I'm like, it's, it's a pretty intense stare and it's, it's to like gauge his, you know, emotions with what Ted's saying to, to change up so he can continue his mask and blend in with these people. He's a master adapter and survivor. Yeah, because the moment that mask cracks, he's he's seen. Yeah. And it's the last thing he wants. After a short stint of staying with friends in San Francisco and working in a sawmill, Ted returned to Washington. He started working as a legal messenger in September of 1969. Nice. Nice. And by the end of the month, he found himself in the Sandpiper Tavern, drinking after a long day. In the same bar, Marilyn Chino? Chino? Chino. Marilyn Chino, a woman Ted referred to as Meg Anders. Meg, a single alcoholic mother working as a secretary of UW's medical school. My kind of lady. (laughs) (laughs) That's a bad one. (laughs) 
I was like, oh, a single mother? Oh, nah, wait, the drunk part, yeah. Yeah, yeah. As he as he clears an entire <laughs> glass of only vodka. And no, ice. it's mixed. Don't worry. You guys didn't want to drink beer today, so I brought my own drinks. And I vodka mixed with other vodka. Grape vodka with Sprite. Where'd you interrupt me at? Uh, single oh, mother. Okay. Oh, yeah, it's right. The uh, alcoholic mother. It's right. Meg, a single alcoholic mother working as a secretary for UW's medical school, had been convinced by her friend Marilyn to hire a sitter for the evening. No? All right. Shortly after arriving, Meg and Marilyn were supposedly being bothered by a creepy guy at the bar. That's you. No, no, no. I'm just I can the, see you being a creepy yeah. guy. I'm the quiet guy you in the corner totally, who's not dude, talking to anyone. You like head bobbing in the corner of the bar, like winking at the girl. No, no, no. I don't have the self confidence to go talk to anyone. I've been in a bar with all two of you. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> I was going say all three of us, but. I've always been to bars where I'm at. <laughs> Honestly, from what I remember at my bachelor party, the, creepier, the creepiest part was you. Because that's when you had your fucking. <laughs> That's I when do? you had your fucking uh, ring girl, long black hair, and you were like fucking head bobbing to the music. Definitely wasn't black, but yeah, go on. It wasn't black. I didn't dye my hair. It was just long. It was just down to my back. So dark brown. Yeah, I'm sorry. It, for his, his sake, for his sake, it's dark brown. Yeah. Anyways, you were like. Bobbin, and I looked over. I was like, "Oh, that's a weird-looking woman." Oh, it's just soup. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, actually, so fun fact: I am going to be the flower girl for Tom and Rose's wedding. It's already set, set in stone. Looking for a way out of the awkward interaction, Marilyn mentioned the handsome brunette sitting by himself across the bar to Meg. According to her, the man had been glancing at Meg all evening. You look like your friend just died. Meg told Ted. You want to make Med sound a little bit feminine? <laughs> oh, okay, I got you. <laughs> what the fuck? You look like your friend just died. Meg told Ted as she approached him, <laughs> noting that he looked like sad sitting alone. <laughs> sad sitting alone. The two hit it off right away. The chemistry and conversation flow felt natural between them. She eventually went back to spending time with Marilyn, but it wasn't long before Ted came back to Meg and asked her to dance. She accepted, and as the dance ended, Ted returned to his solitary spot at the bar until Meg approached him again, and they resumed talking. After the evening of laughing and dancing, Ted found himself back at Meg's house. <laughs> Surprisingly, they spent the night platonically and slept separately. Meg, aw. What a gentleman. Yeah, I know. The first Sad, time aw. in his entire life. <laughs> I'm going to be inside her guts and literally, like, digging in her guts. <laughs> I haven't seen that porno. <laughs> Meg remembered being so drunk that she fell asleep in her bed with her clothes still on. They may not have had the most romantic of encounters, but one thing was for certain. Ted knew that Meg was going to be his. I loved her so much. He it loved her so much. It was the stab- stabilizing. Ted knew that Meg was going to be his. I loved her so much. It was destabilizing. The next morning, Meg woke. Meg awoke to Ted making breakfast in the kitchen with her three-year-old daughter. Molly. Meg and Ted began dating shortly after. Meg even took Ted home to meet her parents in Ogden, Utah for Christmas the same year they met. I fucking hate Utah. I think that's I one think of the least hated, like, well-known hated states. Everybody hates Ohio, but Utah's so much fucking worse. No, dude, I hear Utah's beautiful, man. Like, yeah, they got Mormons, and that's a problem, but, like, <laughs> they got was, mountains and stuff. That's he was beautiful. born there, I believe. Yeah. When have you ever been to Utah? So, 
don't don't listen to him. Utah's awful. He's biased. Yeah. What's one good thing about Utah? The mountains. That's it. You can go to Colorado and get weed and mountains. Come on. It's You're, beautiful. That's so is Iowa. Yeah, no. Swiss if, Valley, fucking Mount Spain, beautiful. Does that describe all of Iowa? No, but it's beautiful. I hate you. You're right. So what about Utah? What's uh, uh what's good about Utah? I don't know, I've never been. See, you I've t- been in Salt Lake City. I don't know. I've seen pictures. Jesus I don't know. Christ. It's always the Mormons. I feel like they're the rat people. They what? damn well could be. You don't know that. Well, they, you don't oh, know no, that. Thinking, uh, you don't know if Joseph Smith was a giant mutated rat, okay? I think you hit a nerve on him. Yeah, apparently. Got I'm triggered. sick of it. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of you guys not understanding that the Mormon religion is led by a giant rat who wears a crown and a cape. His name is Rat King. More like Mark Zuckerberg. Isn't the Brett King the fucking... <gasps> Did you guys hear Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg were about to fight? <laughs> Those memes are fucking fire. Yeah, I wish Ted Bundy was in there to fucking ref. <laughs> <laughs> she later wrote, I handed Ted my life and said... Oh, don't hey. do that. There we go. I handed Ted my life and said... Okay. That's a better girly voice over here. <laughs> I handed... Well, we don't want to be too insulting to our limp female listeners. If they're... No. We have a bunch. We yeah, have they won't be insulted by that. Uh, you never know. <clears throat> All right. She later wrote, sidebar, ladies, I'm sorry if this offends you. We are three men with no women. So I'm going to act as a woman <laughs> actor, actress. So if this offends you, I apologize, but get over it. <laughs> I handed Ted my life and said... Here, take care of me. He did it in a lot of ways, but I became more and more dependent upon him. When I felt his love, I was on top of the world. When I felt nothing from Ted, I felt like I was nothing. That is the most home on the prairie shit I've ever fucking heard in my entire life. <laughs> I didn't life. want to say it. I'm glad you did. God damn it. By February of 1970, Meg expressed to Ted that she didn't want to call him her boyfriend anymore. She wanted to call him her husband. How sweet. It's a trap. <laughs> It's a trap! <laughs> Two of us are married. It's a tower to trap. Careful. <laughs> Without questioning her, Ted borrowed $5 from a friend, took Meg down to the courthouse, and they acquired the paperwork for their marriage license. It cost five, five fucking dollars. It cost me 73 It's, it's called 74. inflation, boys. But you could just... Why do you have to borrow $5? Yeah. <laughs> Poor bastard. Yeah. That's the real question here. <laughs> hey, I'm going to find a... Money conversion from 1970, 1970 to 2020. All right, I paid seventy three or four dollars for my for get married at the courthouse. So let me know what the inflation is of five dollars from then to now, and see if I got fucked over. Oh, you definitely got fucked over. It's like fifty six. I don't know. You're just always fucked over. That's fair. Fair point. Do you type in five dollars in nineteen seventies is equivalent in purchasing power to about thirty nine dollars and nineteen cents today. I got fucked. By like almost twice the amount. Yeah, because you signed your fucking, you put your relationship onto a piece of paper and gave it to the government. What part of you getting fucked well, threw it off? Was it the money? If you waited, he paid thirty nine dollars of today's money, and I paid seventy four. Oh, it's a scam. The government doesn't need to be a part of your relationship. Are you gonna uh, marry Steph? No. Does she know about that? No. <laughs> <laughs> You're not gonna tell her either. I've not listened to this show. You're fucking. Re- <laughs> Sorry, what? You're out of your fucking mind. 
Fuck, there's something I was going to say. Marriage is not a scam. I love my wife. Don't worry. <laughs> we all love our wives here. <laughs> Except Tyler. Except. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> oh, fuck. You think I do three podcasts because I love my family? Get out of here. <laughs> Calm down, Crispin Wall. While Ted still kept his apartment at Rogers Roomington. <laughs> what the fuck kind of name is that? While Ted still kept his apartment at Rogers Rooming House, he partially moved in with Meg and stepped in as Molly's new father figure. Meg was prepping from her, for her parents to come visit. Knowing that her parents would not be happy with her neglecting to tell them that she was getting married to Ted so soon, she came to him with a favor. <coughs> she asked him to temporarily move his stuff out of her home and back into his own apartment. Ted responded by flying into a rage and ripping up their marriage license paperwork in front of her. He told her, If you're that hung up on what your parents think, then you're not ready to get married. Their relationship over the next several years would prove to be intense, toxic, and abusive for both Meg and Molly. While some of Molly's childhood memories with Ted were normal, such as him resurrecting one of her stillborn kittens or a fun trip to the zoo where he was jokingly threatened to feed her to the crocodiles, not all of her memories were as lighthearted. I, I don't think feeding what? someone to a crocodile is a loving memory. See... I would never throw them into a crocodile cage, but I do tell them that I'm going to sell them to the zoo so they can live with the monkeys. But that's like a reasonable like thing yeah, to do. I never like. I haven't gone to a zoo and held Callan over a fucking crocodile with his mouth open. Even though like, like chimpanzees, drop ya. chimpanzees are like the biggest fucking assholes. Oh yeah, they'll rip you apart. Yeah. Have you guys ever fed stingrays at a zoo? Yeah, why yeah, do you keep talking about this? This Dude, is like has nothing to do with it. I know, but on edibles and the stingrays, it like mauled your fucking hand. It was so fucking fun. Do you think stingrays can smell the drugs? No, no, no. Okay, no. So we went to the Omaha Zoo. We took edibles, and we found the stingrays. And you hold the, the shrimp between your fingers, and they glide over your hand and take them, right? But the stingray I had, I fed twice, just straight up engulfed my finger both fucking times. It was super violent. And at what point in time were you going to fight the stingray? It sounds like you were, like, going to fight this Dude, thing. he was aggressive. I'm telling you. Did you see Peyton Manning? What? Omaha! Omaha! <laughs> I don't Stop get that it. joke. That's because you, know, you don't know sports. You know, like, the average Blue 42? Blue 42? Yeah. yeah, but he said Omaha a lot. Oh. Okay. It's a fun fact. It's there. like explaining a cat to a mouse. It's just no. Ugh. <laughs> Ted always seemed to be very physical with her, tickling her and picking her up. Molly wrote about one of her experiences growing up with Ted in the house. With Meg out of the house for the night, Ted and Molly decided to play hide-and-seek around the house. After counting down with her eyes closed, Molly walked into the living room where she found Ted lying on the floor under a blue Afghan blanket. So this is our advisory warning. Uh, This is the part where we were talking about Ted does some heinous things with his young stepdaughter. Uh, If you don't want to hear... This part of the story probably skip about five minutes into the episode, um, and we'll see you then. If not, buckle up. Yeah, this involves. This is this when we did this episode. We okay. So this is the second time we recorded this. The first time we did this, we we were setting up our studio. We were trying to get everything ready. We thought we were good to go. We recorded both two and three, and when we did this, we ended part two on this part. <clears throat> I had to go outside and like take a take a <laughs> breather, dude. I had to like 
take a moment to myself because of how horrible this is. And I can't stress this enough to you guys. So here we if go. If it makes you feel better, he did get what was coming to him. But this does involve a lot of child sexual assault, assault harassment, all the above. It's like, I don't have kids like these two do, but even I was disgusted and... I had to call him and tell yeah, him. Yeah, he had to warn me about it because <laughs> it's fucked up. So buckle up. When she pulled the blanket back, she saw that Ted was completely naked. He tried to explain away the inappropriate action by claiming it was part of his strategy. He told her, I know it's because I can turn invisible, but my clothes can't, and I didn't want you to see me. Young and unsure of how to respond, Molly pushed him and ran back to the area of the house they had marked as a home base. She said that Ted fell to the ground and sat with his knees up and his hands cupping his hand. Wait. She said that Ted fell to the ground and sat with his knees up and his hands cupping his hands around his member. He then got back up and chased after her. He grabbed at Molly and the two began to wrestle. Still naked, by the way. Yep. She remembered the reddish-purple color of what she didn't know yet was an erection. She worried that she had hurt her Ted, but even more so, she noted how small and fixated his eyes had become. He assured Molly that he was not hurt and told her that he just needed to rest. Ted then guided the girl back to her bedroom, climbed into the top bunk with her, and read her a bedtime story. Still naked. Still naked. Still naked. Soon, Molly noticed that her sheets were wet and she accused Ted of having peed in her bed. And brothers and sisters, that was not pee. That was not piss. it was not. God, such a fucking sick fuck. Without an explanation, Ted left her room in silence, and Molly remembered laying awake, hoping he wouldn't come back. He ruined this little girl's life at it's, such a young it's age. It's fucking disgusting. Such a young age, he was ruining lives. God. His weird behaviors with Molly didn't stop at inappropriate sexual contact. One year, Meg and Molly went, to Ted, went with Ted to Green Lake, and Ted took Molly out on the lake on a yellow raft. Once out on the lake, Molly jumped off to swim around for a little bit. When she finally got tired and wanted back on the raft, Ted kept pulling slightly out of her reach, frustrating and exhausting her. Eventually, she was forced to swim the longer distance back to the shore and to her mother. When Ted met up with Meg and Molly, he explained that he thought Molly was joking, and his excuse was just accepted. Again and again, this pattern would repeat in their household, with Ted always coming up with a reasonable excuse for his behavior. Quote-unquote, reasonable. Meg wasn't aware of this behavior in Ted, but he would often gaslight her when it came to how he treated her and her daughter. We'd be getting along fine, and then the door would slam. I'd be out in the cold until Ted was ready to let me back in. I spent hours trying to figure out what I had done or said or what I did wrong. Then suddenly, he would be warm and loving again, and I would feel needed and cared for. Meg recalled of their time together. She remembered that he kept strange things around his apartment. Crutches, bags of plaster, a meat cleaver, and a sack of women's clothing. She knew he stole things, and when she confronted him on one occasion, he told her, If you tell anyone, I'll break your fucking neck! When it came to Ted's professional life, he started to really look up in the early 1970s. He started off with getting a job working with a medical instrument company. He re-enrolled at the UAW and set his sights on... A major in psychology professor commented that ted was goal-oriented and focused 
Within a short period of time, he was an honor student. He left his job at the end of 1971 and picked up a call center position working at Seattle Suicide Resource Center. Co-worker and former police officer, Ann Rule, described Ted as a kind, solicitous, and empathetic. In 1972, Ted graduated from UW, and he and, and Meg had their first child together. Ted also said to have started dating one of his co-workers from the Suicide Resource Center on the side during this time. He also joined Governor Daniel J. Evans' re-election campaign. His job was to record stump speeches from Albert Rosalini and return them for analysis. Analysis. Analysts. Analysts. Words are tough with you today, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Hey, whenever your wife yawns, do you ever put a finger in her mouth? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So it's not just me. <laughs> I do that with my pets, too. I try to. Rocky doesn't like that. His job was to record stump speeches from Albert Rosalini and return them for analysis. Ted impressed Evans and was appointed to Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. Evan was elected and Ted was offered a position to the assistant to Ross Davis while he served as chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. In the spring of 1973, Ted took his LSAT and received an average score. In order to stand out to both UPS and the University of Utah, he called back on Davis and Evans, both of whom wrote strong letters of recommendation. Before attending UPS Law School, Ted went on another little vacation. During the summer of 1973, the Republican Party hosted a business trip that Ted attended. <clears throat> Conveniently for Ted, he was about to bump into someone who'd never really left his mind. Stephanie Brooks was still living in California, and the two crossed paths on the campaign trail. She was surprised with how much Ted had changed. The last she had seen him, Ted was a weak, emotional, shy, indecisive college student who didn't know what he wanted out of his life. The man that stood in front of her was a charismatic, confident, successful law student with a bright future. As far as she knew, he was single. (laughs) This piece of shit. That's all that matters. Ted and Stephanie rekindled the relationship. While Ted returned to Seattle, he didn't end up breaking off the tryst. In fact, they both made trips back and forth to see each other. During the time Ted was cheating on Meg with Stephanie, Meg recalls him being shifty and noting that he was leaving the house at odd times. Neither Meg nor Stephanie knew about each other. While still in a relationship with Meg, Ted proposed to Stephanie, and she accepted. At the pinnacle of the relationship in 1974, Ted finally enacted his plan. In January of 1974, Ted ghosted Stephanie. He refused to return any of her calls or letters. It took her around a month to finally get a hold of Ted, and when she got him on the phone, she demanded to know why he was acting this way. He simply told her, Stephanie... I have no idea what you're talking about. And hung up on her. But it seemed that his self-proclaimed victory in years-long psychological battle with his ex-girlfriend had stirred something dark in Ted. Dude, he fucking found his ex-girlfriend. Coincidentally. Unplanned. Yeah, unplanned. Got with her. Proposed to her. She said yes. And middle fingers went up, dude. That's Talk about the fucking long game. That is such a long game. I'm so impressed. I mean, I can't forget what he just did, but like. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, he's still a pedophile. Still an absolute piece of shit. But that long game is pretty impressive. Yeah, I'll give you that. (laughs) On January 4th of 1974, 10 days before my birthday and 20 years prior. God, no one fucking No one cares. Jody Lynn's roommates began to worry when they noticed that she hadn't come out of her room even once well into the afternoon. While the 18-year-old was no stranger to sleeping in, her friends were concerned that she could be sick. 
When they finally entered her room at 7 p.m., they found Joni still in her bed. Joni was alive, but had been savagely beaten. In the late hours of January 3rd, Ted broke into Joni's basement-level bedroom. It is theorized that Ted stalked Joni leading up to the break-in, citing that she had seen older men of similar description paying her close attention while she had been at a laundromat. He crept up to her while she slept in her bed and removed one of the metal rods from her bed frame. Ted hit Joni with the rod over and over and over and over and over and over. He crept up to her while she slept in her bed and removed one of the metal rods from her bed frame and then began sexually assaulting her with it. He took some metal thing and he rammed it up my vagina and split my bladder. She later told interviews about that night. One of Joni's roommates began talking in his sleep next door and Ted fled the scene, leaving the rod stuck inside her. Joni was left in a coma for the next 10 days and woke up with no memories of the attack or her attacker. What is, from my understanding, what part of the metal frame did he take? Just like a rod. Like back in, like, I don't know if you remember, like, 70s 80s but like bed frames used to have like metal rods and they were really cheap and crappy metal like aluminum i don't remember that but oh of course you don't remember that you were never born in it correct yeah you're not wrong but yeah but just fucked that's how we're ending this man part two we're done fucked yeah thank you guys so much for tuning in and getting through this Dark part of the episode. Next, we're going to finish out a couple more of his murders, and then we're going to go to the trial, and then his sentencing, and everything that led up after. Um, if you haven't already, check us out on YouTube, because we're now doing videos. Hell the yeah. studio is pretty much put together. Uh, we've got a big, crazy interview coming out here soon. Um, also, uh, sorry for the wait. We have been doing studio setup. Uh, we pretty much just As got done see. with it. Uh, it looks amazing if you haven't seen it on our Instagram. If Check us out on Menemus Fortune. Uh, you can also email us at menemusfortune at gmail.com. We've got Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Anywhere you guys get your podcasts, that's where we're at. I am your fearless leader, Tyler Campbell. I am your reigning dipshit, Jake. Before I introduce myself, or extroduce myself... Nice. Is that a word? Yeah, that's a word. It is now. Do you guys know what Ted Bundy's last job was? What? A conductor. Do you get it? No. Because he was electrocuted? Wow. And I'm your diabetic daddy talent. <laughs> wow. I'm going to keep staring at you blankly. Wow. I don't, <laughs> don't want to acknowledge wow. it. Thank you for listening to A Morning Cup of Chaos. Stay misfortunate. Stay chaotic. And always listen to mom. And we're out.